Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Cervillo, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Roger Jeffries-Jones about his excellent new book, The Nazi Spy Ring in America, Hitler's Agents, the FBI, and the Case that Stirred the Nation. Roger, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello, Craig. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you today. Um, sort of customary here on New Books Network, we always begin by asking the author to tell us a little bit about themselves, their background. Um, where they studied, who they studied with, and uh, where they teach. Okay. Well, I grew up in a small Welsh community called Harlech, uh, which is uh, known for its famous marching song, Weir Harlech, or Men of Harlech, which goes da 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 That's tune. So I grew up there in quite a rural area in Wales and attended local Welsh-speaking schools. And then in my high school, I had a a brilliant English teacher, Enid Jones, who got me interested in writing in the English language. Although I grew up in quite a remote area of the UK, uh, I had some cosmopolitan influences on me. For example, my mother had looked after refugees from Hitler's Germany, and one of them, Lily Pincus, became a family friend and my godmother. She later became a famous uh, psychoanalyst, and it was she who drew my attention to the splitting theory about spy profiles, which I'll um, mention later on, I think, in the interview. And I, after that, uh, I studied at the universities of Aberystwyth in Wales, then in Michigan, University of Michigan, Harvard University, and Cambridge University, where I finally got my PhD in uh, American history. Now, this was in the 1960s. And I should mention that I was a typical radical student in the 1960s. I thought of myself as being completely different, of course, from everybody else, but I was actually a typical radical student. But I was quite ambitious. I wanted to be foreign secretary in the British government and to save the world. But eventually I settled down to an academic career and family life in Edinburgh. I was at the University of Edinburgh as a teacher for 46 years. And I'm now an American prof- emeritus professor there. And um, this is, um, how many books have you completed? I've completed 17 books. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and this, um, I'm very curious as to the origin story of this book. Um, how, how did you come up with the idea? Um, was this sort of a project that you've been thinking about long term or did you when you were in an archive and you stumbled upon some things? And you're like, oh, I, I should write this. <laughs> well, well, it's a mixture of the two things, uh, Craig. I, I have a long term interest because my Ph.D. was on violence in industrial relations in the United States in the first few years of the 20th century. And uh, one of the main features of my research was the into the role of private detective agencies who were used to spy on labor unions in that period in American history and running right through 
to the uh, 1930s. So I had a, an early interest in detection. And later on, uh, I wrote a history of the FBI, which is, uh, of course, uh, about federal crime detection. And then after that, I wrote a history of Anglo-American intelligence relations called Inspires We Trust. And in researching for this book, I came across Jesse Jordan. Jesse Jordan, the Scottish spy who features in my book, The Nazi Spying in America. And there was an FBI connection with the Jesse Jordan story. So I made a Freedom of Information Act application to see what was available at the FBI. And over at the FBI, a guy called John Russo was very helpful. And he worked very hard at the FBI for, for a period of just over five years and altogether found uh, 14,500 pages uh, of references to, um, to Jesse Jordan. And those gave me, an, gave me an insight into the documents surrounding the Nazi spy case of 1938. I could see straight away that there was a story to be told. Um, and, and before we get into sort of the nuts and bolts of the story, um, anybody who picks up the book and reads it will notice that there are, there are a great number of characters that appear in your book, and, and you have a very helpful section in the back with uh, the names and sort of brief biographical data of, of each. Um, but can you give us a, a flavor for the characters? Um, what, are the, what are the major characters that people should be aware of? Well, one of them was uh, Wilhelm Ronkowski. He was born in a little tiny hamlet called Varlini in East Prussia. And uh, he thus came from disputed territory because this was historically a part of Poland, uh, but was then um, had been colonized by, the, by the, uh, the Germans, the Prussians, and also the, the Russians had a claim to it. So um, I think that uh, this gave him a, a kind of feeling of split identity from an early period. It was quite interesting that uh, Lonkowski is really a Polish name, but he felt very, very German, and he fought for Germany in the f f First World War. He was, flew down, he was shot down from uh, his fighter plane and seriously injured in the uh, First World War. Uh, in, in 1929, the Germans established the Abwehr, and, and you're a German speaker, Craig, so you know that Abwehr means defense, but actually, it was a spy agency and undertook uh, espionage in foreign countries. So, Ronkowski uh, was sent to the, at an early stage after the war to spy in France. And then Friedrich Gemp, who was the guy who was uh, in charge of uh, the Abwehr, sent Ronkowski to America in 1927. He, he arrived in the States uh, with the surname William Sexton. And that, that's why he was called Sex. It's an abbreviation of Sexton. It's a little bit boring because one would hope for a more one would hope for a more interesting story there. But that's how he got his name, Sex. I mean, he, he lived in uh, on, he lived on Long Island and worked for the Ireland and Fairchild Aircraft Manufacturing Companies on defence contracts and built a, a, a network of German American agents. But in September 1935, he was about to board the Europa, a, a German. Uh, liner, burst in uh, New York City, when a customs guard saw him carrying a parcel, stopped him, searched the parcel, found it uh, contained secret documents pertaining to American defense, 
And the, the authorities, the, the, he called the military authorities, the military intelligence authorities, and they told Murkowski to report back in three days for interrogation. Murkowski uh, decided to exit the United States, got into a very fast car driven by a World War I flying ace, German flying ace, and uh, arrived at the Canadian border and embarked on a ship back to Germany. Now, the FBI never laid a hand on him. Hand on him. He, uh, he was just not known to the FBI, but he built up this network. Another character in the book is Eric uh, Pfeiffer. Now, Pfeiffer was a top-class spymaster, born in Altenkirchen in the Rhineland. Now, he wasn't one of these people, who, and they were quite uh, numerous, one of these people in the Abwehr who got into intelligence just because they wanted to avoid combat or they got their jobs through nepotism. This guy had fought in the First World War. He had a dueling scar on his left cheek, which indicated he came from the um, German middle classes. He fought on the Koenig, the flagship of the German fleet, fleet in the Battle of Jutland in 1916. Well, after the war, he worked for a labor union in the 1920s, which is not the trajectory you would expect of a Hitler fanatic. And really, he was a professional Navy man rather than a Nazi. He rejoined the Navy in the 1930s and became an expert on naval logistics. He knew all about ship movements all over the world. And he was handpicked by Wilhelm Canaris, who was in charge of the Abwehr by this stage, and put in charge of a special spy station at Bremen with the specific objective of spying on the United States. This was in 1935, the same year that Lankowski had to flee the United States. After that, Pfeiffer ran the French Navy spy, Marc Aubert. One of the famous uh, spy cases in French history arose from that. He went to Brest in the Second World War, where he advised on the invasion of the UK, advising Hitler that Germany didn't have enough ships, in fact, to do that. Then he moved to Paris to organize the repression of the French resistance, and so on. So this is a really top-class uh, uh, spy master. He traveled all over the world with his mistress, Hilda Gersdorf, who was uh, also his secretary, and a lot of these spies uh, did have uh, mistresses, another kind of split personality existence where you have to live two lives one with your wife and family and one with your mistress. He was an expert on espionage and ran classes on espionage for other uh, prospective German spies. And he was a, um, a student of Maximilian Ronger, the famous uh, Austrian spy master. Another character in the book is Jesse Jordan. Jesse was born in Glasgow in 1887, the illegitimate daughter of an Irish immigrant called Elizabeth Wallace. Her father, William Ferguson, absconded to the United States when he discovered that Lizzie Wallace was uh, pregnant. So she didn't have a great, great start in life. She worked as a chambermaid in a hotel in the Scottish city of Dundee, and there she met a German called Fritzi Jordan. She went to Germany with him and married him. Fritzi Jordan was killed on the Western Front in 1918. But thereafter... Um, Jesse set up a hairdressing business in Hamburg. When trade, when trade uh, dried up there in the 1930s, 
she went back to Scotland. She decided to go to Scotland to look after um, a relative's um, house and children as a housemistress. But as she was going from her home to the port in Hamburg, the Gestapo intercepted her and took her to Aber headquarters, where she was interrogated and indoctrinated for eight days. And then she agreed, and on that occasion, she agreed to spy for Germany. So she went to Scotland, spied for Germany. But in addition to looking for targets for the German Air Force to bomb, she was a post-restaurant. That is, she received letters sent from New York to spy headquarters in Hamburg. She received them in Dundee, readdressed them, and sent them on. This was an attempt to deceive any counterintelligence people in the United States about the destination of these letters. Now, MI5, which was the British counterintelligence agency, was intercepting and reading these letters. And that's how they found out about the Nazi spying in America. Jesse was then tried in secret and went to prison in 1938 and in 1945 was deported to Germany. And this brings us to the main character in the book, a guy called Leon Theroux. Theroux was one of America's greatest detectives, born in 1895 in Kobrin, then part of the Russian-occupied Poland, and today in Belarus. So he had the same kind of split background as some of the spies he was uh, investigating. Now, to please some of his Christian girlfriends and later U.S. audiences when he became a celebrity. He told a number of lies. For example, he played on the emotions of women in the audience by saying he was an orphan, which was not true. He also said that he was not Jewish, whereas, in fact, he was a Jew. He tried to keep his Jewish origins secret from the families of his Christian girlfriends because they would have objected to the fact that he was Jewish. So... He engaged in a great deal of mendacity, but that made him a, a good detector of mendacity and others. In the early 1930s, he was acknowledged within the FBI as being its best criminal investigator, and he was on their top pay rate as a detective. So Hoover put him onto the, uh, put him onto the Nazi spy case when it fell into the hands of the uh, FBI because of the tip off from MI5. It was a difficult job for Theroux because NYPD, the New York Police Department, had leaked to the newspapers the information about the early stages of the FBI investigation, and this meant that most of the spies knew what was happening and fled, fled to Germany. But nevertheless, Theroux managed to arrest four spies and um, bring them to justice. Um, and well, that's part of the people in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that that was great explanation because um, there there are a lot of characters and uh, and, and they're really important to the story. Um, before we get to their arrest and trial, there there's a few things that we, I'd like to discuss. Um, so first, what's sort of the background of the ring, of the spy ring? How 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 was it formed, conceptualized? I guess um, who was giving the order? Sort of what was the chain of command, uh, and what were their overall objectives? Well, at the back of it was uh, Adolf Hitler. Hitler admired Henry Ford, the American manufacturer, and uh, he admired American technology. 
So Hitler had conflicting aims towards the United States. On the one hand, he wanted the secrets of U.S. technology to help him to rearm Germany. Germany had been forced to disarm after the First World War. He wanted to make Germany a great military power again. And so he wanted to steal American military secrets. On the other hand, at first he wanted to maintain good relations with the United States. So he had these conflicting aims, but it was Hitler who was behind the um, the, the, uh, accelerated thrust in the 1930s to get hold of American military secrets. And in 1935, Hitler put Wilhelm Canaris, whom I mentioned earlier, in charge of the Abwehr. And this resulted in a step change in espionage against the United States. A lot more spies were um, employed, a lot, of, a lot more money was poured in. Canaris appointed Pfeiffer, setting up the Bremen spy station. So although Lomkowski fled in that year, there was a revitalization of the effort. Pfeiffer was someone who wanted to centralize intelligence against the United States, but he wasn't entirely successful, largely because of <clears throat> interference by the Nazi party. Pfeiffer was really a professional um, German Navy spy, part of a long tradition of uh, such activities. Uh, but the Nazi party interfered with uh, his, his ventures and sent people independently to America, for example, Mickey, Mickey Ritter was one uh, spy they sent over, and he got in touch with a guy called Fritz Lang, who wa worked in the northern uh, bomb factory, sorry, bomb site factory in, in Manhattan, in New, New York. And uh, he was able to obtain the secrets of this new bomb, um, a, a, a bomb, a bomb sighting machine from Fritz Lang. And um, Fritz's brother, Hans, Hans Lang, got, got in touch with the San Francisco Abwehr network. And that led, in March 1938, to the murder of the wife and daughter of the uh, DuPont industrialist, Western G. Pop Frohn. They, they had kidnapped Frohn's wife and daughter in order to force him to divulge the uh, details of... Uh, the manufacturing of certain chemicals important in the defense industry. And when Pop Throne refused to accede to the other demands, they killed his wife and daughter and left their naked bodies in the Chihuahua Desert. So this was the split off from Pfeiffer's way of uh, operating from the attempt by him to centralize U.S. intelligence. And so the goals of the, these spies, first of all, uh, they were, of course, after the technical secrets. Uh, but also it's important to note that they were after the, the secrets of U.S. defenses up and down the East Coast, for example, and in the Panama Canal area. In other words, they were preparing for the eventuality of a, of a German military attack against the United States. So it was quite aggressive espionage. Um, if I could ask a follow-up question, you, you mentioned the sort of attempt to centralize um, sort of these intelligence operations and that the Nazi party sort of meddled in that. Was the sort of, I guess, lack of coherent policy um, a result of their lack or their sort of dual aims 
with the United States, both trying to obtain technology, but also trying not to uh, ruffle too, too many feathers too fast? Is, is, was that why, or were there other considerations? I, I think that's um, the, the problems that they had. And, and I think it's important to note that the German spying was quite successful. Uh, and they, they may have been um, uh, destroyed by the efforts of uh, Leon Trun, but up until that point, they were quite successful. So it's not uniformly um, a question of in, incompetence. Um, no, I, I think the main conflict is not uh, concerning... The, 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 the German diplomats were very concerned that the spies were ruffling feathers in the United States, and uh, as I'll mention uh, later on. But, but the main problem that people like Pfeiffer confronted, and he complained about it bitterly, was that the Nazi party was interfering in his, uh, in his affairs, and he said, putting amateurs onto the job. And when Tzuru finally rolled up the network and uh, destroyed it, Pfeiffer said, well, it wasn't my fault. The reason this happened was that the Nazi party was insisting on employing amateurs to pursue certain madcap schemes in the United States. And if it had been left to the professionals like myself, uh, the FBI would never have succeeded in the way it did. So you mentioned that they were successful. Um, can you give us a couple of examples of the kinds of operations that they, um, that they, they undertook? Uh, you mentioned DuPont. Um, but um, what were just some of the more sort of, I guess not, mundane, but the, the normal operations that they were undertaking? Well, what, what they did typically was to employ um, German-American mechanics in key positions in the defense industry. There were, there were a lot of people, I should mention at the outset that most German-Americans were uh, loyal American citizens. So we're just looking at a small minority here who admired the Nazi party in the United States. And they would approach people like that. And, and many of these uh, German-Americans were highly skilled because Germany had a, a, a tradition of um, advanced technology. And they would be working in key, key positions in the defense industry. And, and they would get them to divulge some of the secrets. And it, it's worth noting here that in the 30s, the United States had a very poor security. There was no proper uh, counter-espionage system until... Leon uh, to got to work, and uh, industry was uh, also pretty lax. For, uh, there was no system, for example, of the safe disposal of um, waste paper. They would put waste paper into waste of the baskets. I mean, this is not this is not good procedure. Waste paper should be destroyed, burnt, or shredded, or whatever. Uh, similarly, uh, the, the FBI said um, when they investigated that the, the keys to cupboards were secret documents and um, uh, uh, confidential information of various kinds were, were freely circulating among, amongst um, personnel. So industry was um, r really uh, just a sitting duck for these, uh, for these German uh, spies. So I think that uh, what they did can be uh, explained in terms of uh, what they got, what, what kind of booty did they get. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll give you some examples. First, they obtained the hull design of a new generation of destroyers. This wasn't all that strategically important because the hull designs they got, which involved the uh, use of an aluminum alloy, uh, turned out not to be successful. So that, although they got that information, 
uh, it is a false trail, as it were. They did get the design of the newest uh, fighting plane uh, produced in the United States. And in fact, one of the German spies, uh, a guy called Otto Voss, actually helped to design those fighter planes, but he handed over the information to the uh, German spy masters for nothing. He worked, he worked for them because he was a convinced Nazi. They also got the blueprints of the new uh, gyroscopic bombsite, which I mentioned earlier. For that, incidentally, the whole b- blueprint was smuggled out. A copy of the blueprint was smuggled out, a, a scaled model, and they imported a special ro- rolled umbrella so it could be rolled up inside an umbrella and carried onto one of the uh, German ships. They also got the aircraft retraction details for the new class of aircraft carrier being developed by the United States in the 30s. And they got the prototype of a a new code deciphering machine. Now, this last secret was sold to the Abwehr by its co-designer, Agnes Driscoll, who was of German uh, descent. It's quite an interesting case because in later years, she was a hero of the... um, American code-breaking community, and uh, is buried as a hero in Arlington National Cemetery and is a feminist uh, icon. But in the mid-1930s, she sold the prototype of the new code-deciphering machine to the uh, Abwehr, and um, the Pfeiffer was absolutely delighted with this acquisition. So that's the kind of work they they did, and that's how they went about it, through these mechanics. So, I mean, they obviously were quite, I mean, you make the case that they, they took a lot of technology. Um, why was security so lax? Well, I think that um, America had never really uh, confronted a problem of espionage like that in, in the past. I mean, there had been um, espionage against America, for example, in the War of 1898. There was a Spanish uh, spy ring. And they identified targets up and down the East Coast for naval bombardments, just as uh, the um, Arbor was doing later on. But nobody had really gone after American industrial secrets in a methodical way before. And I think also the, um, the general attitude in the 20s and 30s was that the First World War had been a war to end all wars. So no, no future conflicts would take place. There was a feeling in the scientific community that scientific uh, information should not be kept as a kind of nationalistic secret, uh, but should be shared by, by everyone. There was um, a great deal of skepticism. For example, the New York Times uh, believed that uh, the whole spy scandal uh, was a lot of nonsense because um, America now lived in uh, an age of openness. There were no more uh, secrets. Uh, The whole spy business was invented by people like J. Edgar Hoover, who wanted more money from the federal government to build up his his bureau. So uh, there was also, of course, the... um, the uh, neutrality legislation, legislation of the mid-1930s, and from 35 to 37, 
America passed neutrality legislation indicating it would never again take place in a, in a, a war such as the First World War and wanted to keep out of any future European conflicts. So there was a, a mood of what some people called isolationism, quite a naive attitude, one might argue, towards international relations. And people, it just didn't occur to people that uh, spies would penetrate the United States and uh, carry off their spirals with such great ease. Um, you mentioned that some of the technology, the code-breaking machine, for instance, w was sold um, the prototype was sold, but what were, were what were some of the methods that they used to to sort of get these people to talk? Was it was a, a lot of it like this? You know, oh, I have this prototype, let me sell it to you, or or were there more coercive measures, like in the case of Dupont that you mentioned earlier, um, or just sloppiness, getting them drunk? You know, like um, what, what was sort of their preferred method? Um, of obtaining this, of these, obtaining these technologies and secrets. Well, the uh, in, in in German American circles, um, in uh, Yorktown, in uh, New York City, for example, there was a great deal of uh, socializing. Uh, people spoke the German language or get together in in their um, their bars and uh, and have a good time. And it was possible for the people who were active in uh, espionage in New York to sound out these people about their political views regarding Hitler. What did they think of Hitler? And uh, if there were Hitler, Hitler uh, admirers, then they could be taken aside and asked in a discreet way where they would, they would be prepared to do something for the, for the fatherland, meaning Germany, in spite of the fact that some of these people were already American uh, citizens. Well, that, that was uh, one way in which it was done. Um, they also um, invited some of the mechanics over to Germany, uh, where they uh, would say they would offer them a, a job in German industry on a part on um, a temporary or a longer term basis. And once they were over in the American industry, then they would simply extract from them. The, the secrets they had obtained when they were working in the uh, United States. And some of the um, German-American mechanics interviewed by the FBI had had its experience and gone over to, the, to, the, to, to Germany, had been approached and had been scandalized and uh, objected to, to it uh, very strongly. And they, they told the FBI that. However, some of these uh, people were then subjected to pressure which was usually about what was going to happen to their families in Germany. And of course, a lot of them had relatives, ancient parents, brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces, who still lived in Germany. And uh, the Nazis were quite ruthless. For example, they would say, your father's going to lose his pension. What's going to happen to your family if you don't cooperate with us and give us the information we need? So there were some witnesses in the in the trial who were not um, accused of espionage, uh, but they told their stories about how they'd been approached by the uh, uh, by the Abwehr and in Germany by the Gestapo to force them to diverge secrets. So there's a mixture of methods. Uh, part, partly it was uh, just friendly approaches, and uh, then also they could bring about uh, considerable pressure. Hmm. Um, 
So we, we've, you've mentioned the trial um, a couple of times now. So so let's let's dive into the trial. So Taru sort of breaks up, you know, catches these spies, and, and they have a they have a pretty famous trial in, in thirty eight. Um, so so to give us a sort of a breakdown of the trial, um, how does it proceed? Who are the sort of the stars? Um, verdicts, th those kinds of things, and I'll, I'll get you some follow-up questions as well. Okay, well, um, w one of the features of the trial was that the two prime witnesses were missing. One of these was a guy called Ignaz Griebel. Now, Griebel was a New York, New York uh, gynecologist and a prominent uh, anti-Semite who doubled up as one of the leading organizers of German espionage in the United States. He was a very unpleasant person. Just to give you one example, he had a list of United States Jews, for example, the mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia, who would be eliminated once the Nazis took over in America. But he was a, a central spy figure who helped the FBI with their inquiries, especially he helped Leon uh, Toulouse. Um, he, it was he, by the way, uh, Griebel, who had helped Slonkowski to escape in 1935. It was Griebel's car that Slonkowski used to get to the uh, German border. So he was a central figure, but he cooperated with the FBI. But on the eve of the trial, he departed for Germany. So he couldn't appear as a star witness. A delegation was sent to Germany to interview him, but he gave a long and rambling statement, then complained that he couldn't tell them everything because the German authorities would have uh, had some kind of retributive treatment uh, for him. So it was, it was a jumbled statement, and he was no good as a, as, a, as a witness. The other key witness was Jesse Jordan, uh, but she could not testify because she was in prison in, in Scotland. So the district attorney in charge of the case in New York, Lamar Hardy, took a trip to Scotland to interview her, but it was a trip in vain because there was obstruction from MI5. MI5 had been glad to tip off the Americans about the Nazi spying, but from their point of view, Jesse Jordan was their prisoner, not the FBI's prisoner, and she didn't. They didn't want her appearing in courts in New York and ventilating the methods by which uh, MI5 had uh, tracked her down. They just wanted to keep her well guarded in secret in a Scottish in a Scottish prison. She was also um, uh, protected from uh, Lamar Hardy by the Scottish uh, legal authorities, who placed quite a number of ob obstacles in his way, and in the end, didn't even allow. Hardy to interview her. So these were two key witnesses who were absent from the trial. That left Thoreau himself as a key witness. Now, a huge effort was made to discredit him by the defense counsel, George C. Dix, who did his very best to say that uh, Thoreau had an interest in the proceedings and therefore was not an impartial witness. He couldn't be believed. Fortunately for, for George Dix, he didn't get the whole spiel about Taru, which would have shown how um, inaccurate he had been in his statements at an earlier stage in his career. So Dix's attack on Taru failed, and basically the jury believed Taru 
and Suru obtained his uh, his witnesses, his uh, his uh, convictions. Now, the trial was shocking to America, and it also stays in the news because it supplied a kind of uh, gruesome form of entertainment. For example, when the FBI had alerted um, the American authorities in the first place, it had been because it found out that there was a plot to kidnap an American uh, army officer, Colonel Henry Eglin, uh, to entice him to the McCarlton Hotel in New York City, and there to overpower him and inject him with the contents of a syringe disguised as a fountain pen, and to steal from him the plans for the East Coast defenses of the United States, which he was supposed to be carrying uh, at the time. And, and uh, MI5 concluded that, in fact, they were going to kill Eglin, and that's why they tipped off the Americans. Well, this is quite an entertaining story. You know, it's a good headline in the newspapers. I mean, another one was the story about the Kate Moog Salon. Kate Moog was an immigrant to the United States from Germany in the 1920s. And according to her, though um, I'm pretty convinced that she was telling lies, according to her, she nursed Franklin Delano Roosevelt when the future president of the United States was um, struggling against the onset of polio in the 1920s. So she told uh, Griebel, the New York spy, because she lived in New York, she, and she was in fact his mistress. She told him that she knew everybody in the American establishment because she'd mixed with FDR circles, Franklin D. Roosevelt circles. So people took her to Bremen in Germany. She met Pfeiffer and was briefed by Pfeiffer. Then he went on to Berlin and stayed in the Adlon Hotel, one of the very best hotels in Berlin. And they met um, the head of the uh, Abwehr uh, Canaris, Admiral Canaris. And in the Abwehr headquarters in Berlin was has hatched the, the, the plot to establish uh, no expenses barred summer in Washington, D.C., the United States capital, to the salon would be enticed members of the political establishment, members of the military establishment, vulnerable uh, officers, and they would be enticed to engage in relationships which would make them susceptible to blackmail, and then they would be persuaded to spy for Germany. An entertaining story. Of course, nothing came of the plan because the FBI got onto the case, but it was nevertheless an entertaining story and kept public interest alive in the in the trial. Well, the outcome of the trial was convictions of Gunther um, Rumrich, a minor spy erected, who was arrested early on and uh, decided to help the FBI with inquiries, uh, Eric Glazer, his, his assistant, uh, Jenny Hoffman, who was a courier on the Spy the, the uh, passenger ships crossing the um, Atlantic, and it, it was she who had been intended to be the bait to get um, the army officer to enter the McCartan Hotel. It was a honey trap. Uh, so Jenny Hoffman was convicted, and so was Otto Voss, uh, whom we mentioned earlier, as having helped to design 
American fighter aircraft. The legacy of the, well, just a brief word about the legacy of the, of the case. I think it was a, a boost to, to counter espionage in the States and to the FBI. And some people might say that it boosted the FBI too much, allowing FDR, for example, to spy on, on political opponents like Senator Gerald P. Nye. And it contributed, I think, to a wider consensus for preparedness. Um, just what are some of the um, sentences that are um, handed down? Okay. Um, the, the sentences uh, handed down uh, varied. Uh, Rummich got off lightly because he tapped the FBI, so he got two years. Uh, Glazer the same. Jenny, Jenny Hoffman is rather unfortunate to have a four-year sentence. And Ottavos also had a four-year sentence. But, uh, of course, um, in the cases of Hoffman and Voss, they were still in prison when the United States entered the war. And um, that meant that uh, they, they would be interned for the duration of the war. So they were in prison for longer, except for Hoffman. Hoffman uh, was allowed to leave the country. Uh, for uh, Portugal under uh, a, a special dispensation before the end of her term. But Otto Voss was in prison for the, for the entire term and for longer. The, these sentences, by the way, um, um, were relatively light compared with sentences that might have been handed out had America been at war. I think when spies um, are apprehended during peacetime, uh, they're not so harshly treated. Right. I, I was going to ask. Uh, the, the, the sentences seemed a little light, um, so I appreciate you explaining. Yeah, I think you're, um, the war, if we were at war, they would have been a uh, totally different fate for them. Um, let me, so you mentioned a minute ago that the, the, the trial was very, you know, it was big in the newspapers, it was sensationalist, it told great stories um, that people were interested in. But Aside from the entertainment aspect of it, what was the public reaction to these trials and, and just the idea that the Germans and, and were spying and stealing our technology and we weren't, you know, Americans weren't thinking well, think, about Europe? The um, um, public reaction was um, one of uh, considerable shock. Now, um, at the um, start of the trial, uh, most of uh, most people in America were strongly supportive of uh, neutrality, which meant that um, no war materials of any kind could be sent to any belligerent country in Europe. That is basically what the neutrality acts were about. And in that period, we can assume, I think, that Ger Germany was held in relatively high esteem. People thought Germany had a rough deal in the 1920s because of the terms of the Versailles peace deal. It was also, people were beginning to think you couldn't ju blame Germany entirely for the start of the First World War. War guilt really should be spread amongst all the participants. So people were getting softer in their attitudes towards Germany in the mid-1930s. <clears throat> um, but the, the spy trial changed that and people began to 
abandon the principle of neutrality so that by um, the following year, 1939, a huge majority supported uh, sending materials to the Allies. One interesting aspect of that is that um, German diplomats were convinced that it was a spy trial uh, which um, terminated America's high regard for their country. And they thought the spy trial, and uh, we we can see here um, some divergence between the the German diplomats and the Nazi party, uh, which strongly uh, favored the espionage. But but they thought that um, Germany was held in high esteem until the spy trial, and that that then uh, prejudiced American opinion against the United States. And um, one reason why people um, thought the spy trial had that effect was that uh, Teru, Leon Teru, left the FBI just before the start of the trial in order to start a publicity campaign denouncing the Nazis. And then he gave lectures all over the United States. He was on the radio. Massive, massive uh, campaign. Now, he, in the following year, in 1939, inspired the Warner Brothers movie, Confession of a Nazi Spy, which is based on the case. America's uh, leading actor, Edward G. Robinson, acted the role of Teru in the movie. And it's interesting to note, by the way, that this was an all Jewish uh, involvement. The Warner Brothers, who produced the movie, were uh, Jewish. Edward G. Robinson was Jewish. And of course, um, Teru was Jewish, although he didn't like to talk about it. So it's an instance of American Jews coming out fighting because previously they had thought, well, we had better keep our heads under the parapet because it was thought that um, for a Jewish person to advocate the cause of anti-Semitism would be to invite the criticism that, oh, you're, you're, you're biased because you're a Jew. But it's a turning point in the, the Jewish approach. But there were others, of course, who were prominent in the campaign, for example, the novelist Ernest Hemingway, who had fought in the Spanish, Spanish Civil War and was a committed uh, anti-fascist. Um, so you, you mentioned that Teru um, was a main character in the movie and he did radio and things. But what is his, what is his legacy? Um, one of the important things about your book is that you sort of pull him um, back from sort of the dustbin. Um, he's, I, I want to know why he's not more famous. Um, and I'll let you talk about that. Okay. Well, Teru's legacy, I think, is an enhanced FBI on the one hand and uh, an increase in American awareness of the perfidiousness and danger of the Nazi threat. I think that's his legacy. <clears throat> now, why isn't he better known? Well, the FBI director, Jed Hoover, dismissed him with prejudice. That's a phrase used in his letter of dismissal. It dismiss him, you dismiss someone with prejudice. Uh, it's, like being, um, it's like a dishonorable discharge from the armed forces. He dismissed him before the start of the trial. Uh, I said that Saru resigned, but Hoover backdated the dismissal so that uh, he was, in effect, sacked before his resignation, which meant that he didn't get his, uh, his pension and other benefits due to him. 
Now, why did he do this? Why did Hoover dismiss him? First, because Hoover had already signed up with the New York Post to tell his story and publicize the Nazi spy menace. And this threatened to prejudice the forthcoming trial. Quite a good reason, actually. Um, Second, although Taru was the FBI's best-paid agent, Taru was going to make a lot more money. In fact, he did make a lot more money outside the Bureau. And Hoover was nervous that other FBI agents would follow in his footsteps and make more money outside the the Bureau, thus instigating a brain drain, one might say, from the FBI. Finally, as many have uh, pointed out, Hoover was the kind of guy who wanted to hog the glory for himself. He didn't like the idea of one of his agents making a big splash in the newspapers and getting a lot of credit. So anyway, Hoover tried to defy him, and he also tried to blacklist Taru from all federal employment, and ran, and ran a campaign to blacken his name. Now, all, all this, I think, has blurred memories of Taru, and also contributed to his decision to emigrate to France after World War II. So he just went around for Americans to uh, take, take notice of him. Now, in spite of Hoover's hostility, in World War II, Taru became the director of the Paris-based Central Registry of War Criminals and Security Suspects originally set up by the Allied High Command, military high command, and then taken over by the United Nations. According to the German magazine Der Spiegel in 1949, Toulouse's application of IBM computers to the task of hunting down Nazi war criminals brought him worldwide fame. That's a quotation, worldwide fame. I think that's an exaggeration. Uh, And... uh, overlooks his work as a 1930s uh, spy hunter, for, for sure. But it's kind of sympath- sym- symptomatic of the fact. I mean, the Der Spiegel emphasis on that activity is symptomatic of the fact that people are already forgetting about what he did in the 1930s. What happened to Taru? Well, in France, uh, he stayed in France, and he became a security man for the billionaire John Paul Getty. He then did some work for General Walter Beadle Smith, when Smith was head of the CIA. That's 1950-53. Finally, in 1965, Hoover removed the with prejudice sentence from his dismissal notes in a kind of, exonera- uh, in a kind of uh, exoneration. And Taru died in Paris at the age of 91 in 1986. He lived quite a long time. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're we're coming up on an hour, and so before I just want to ask a couple of final questions. Um, first, as a way to wrap up discussion of your book, what what are one or two things you would like somebody who reads your book or listens to you today to take away from it, to sort of keep with them? One thing I'd like people to take away is that there was an American hero called Leon Theroux, and the other main thing is that. The Nazi spy trial of 1938 helped to move the United States away from neutrality. It was a domestic event, and I think domestic events are often more important than foreign events, such as Kristallnacht and the other uh, 
German atrocities in Europe. Okay. Um, so now that this book is done and it's on the shelves, people can read it. Um, what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on the history of the CIA and the uh, idea is that it will appear in 2022, which is the year of the agency's 75th birthday. Uh, it's meant to be an interpretive synthesis that takes into account the scholarship about different episodes and phases in its history. Uh, I hope it will be a corrective, both to over-celebratory and to over-hateful literature that may appear about the CIA in that year. It aims at general readers and at campus use. I've got chapter headings on useful topics like Bay of Pigs. Bay of Pigs. Um, and the whole thing is tied together by my hypothesis which is that the CIA has to be a high standing, have to has, has to have a high standing to be effective. Respect in the White House for the CIA and respect from, from the public. I think that's essential to its utility. So I've got a contract to produce that book with OUP and I'm working hard on it at the moment. Well, when it's done, um, we'd love to have you back to talk about it. It sounds like really interesting um, and something that, I, I can imagine really hasn't been done a whole synthesis of the history of the CIA. Um, so it, um, I want to thank Rodri again for being on the show today. Um, I, I can't recommend this book enough. It, it reads like a novel. Uh, it's very, very uh, pleasant to read. Um, an excellent history of something that I think a lot of people don't know a lot about. Um, and I want to give the title of the book uh, just one more time. And it's called, the Nazi Spiring in America, Hitler's Agents, the FBI, and the Case That Stirred the Nation. The author is Rodri Jeffries-Jones. Um, and I want to thank everybody for listening to the show today. And I definitely want to thank Rodri again for agreeing to come and, and speak with us. My pleasure. And we will see everyone next time.